Yesterday in Pakistan, there was a terrorist bombing that targeted Shia Masjid. At least, at least 11 people were killed. Many people were injured while they were mourning Imam Hussein alayhi salam inside a masjid in Pakistan. And last week, or less than a week ago, before, almost one week ago, Saudi Arabia, another masjid, another house of worship belongs to the Shia community was attacked by some Wahhabi extremists. I want to ask this question. I want to ask our own administration why they keep, they turn a blind eye from what Saudi Arabia regime has been doing by financing those Wahhabi terrorists around the world and inside Saudi Arabia. And the other question to the Muslim population around the world, what else other than murder and terrorism the sect, the Wahhabi sect has to offer to the world other than a bloodshed, killing, executing, beheading people in Iraq, in Pakistan, in Saudi Arabia, in Syria, in Yemen. This is the single agenda that the Wahhabis have for the Muslims around the world. That if you do not accept us, then we shall come after you and we shall annihilate you, unfortunately. This is the lesson that Wahhabis are teaching the world, but unfortunately, who is paying the price for their atrocities? Islam, our religion, that's paying the price for that. And we Muslims need to be more vocal, especially here in America, that what you see around the world, what you see happening in the, around the world, Atrocities committed by the Wahhabis has nothing to do with Islam. Those are a bunch of terrorists that Islam would not consider members at all. Those are terrorists who do not represent our faith, but yet, unfortunately, have been successful in hijacking Islam. Decide it's in our national security interest to intervene. And if you don't like it, lump it. The problem with America is not that we go around marauding around the world imposing ourselves. Mm. The problem with America in the last 10, 15 years since the end of the Cold War, really in the last 60 years, is that we've been too slow to get involved. I don't know how many Iraqi civilians were killed, but I can assure you that the number is the absolute minimal that it's possible in modern warfare. Every nation in every region now has a decision to make. Either you are with us, or you are with the terrorists. Now, that land over there is yours. You'll go back to it one day, because your fight will prevail, and you'll have your homes and your mosques back again, because your cause is right, and God is on your side. Welcome to the darkened hour. Welcome to the Dark and Dower. I'm your host, Adam Fitzgerald. In this special episode, we will talk about political Islam originated from the Salaf Wahhabi ideology. We will summarize how the Wahhabi ideology manifested itself 
into a political response regarding U.S. foreign policy and, quote, from those who originated out of these groups in which statements were made which illuminated not how Western style dress or freedom of religion is offensive to them, but instead a response to our foreign policy. In which the essence of Islam is the ultimate victim. For the Wahhabi Salafi ideology is anti-ethical to the teachings and declarations of that which is in the Quran. In this episode, we will talk about the Wahhabi origins led by their self-appointed caliphs which originate from the aberrated definitions from people such as Muhammad Ibn al-Wahhab, Ibn Tamiya, to Sayyid Qutb, Abu Nidal, Osama bin Laden, and to the current terrorists that take the name of Islam and insult it. The general position regarding the groups and individuals from the Wahhabi sect is to usurp secular Arab governments and to replace them with the rulers of the Sharia religious law. The overall goal of the Wahhabi is having each Arab country governed by the Sharia and Sunnah, the traditions and practices of the Islamic prophet Muhammad that constitute a model for Muslims to follow, which would constitute as the ruling Islamic caliphate and extend beyond the borders of the former Ottoman Empire to the lands of the unbelievers, which are, who are also known as the Murtadun, while the believers are known as the Alumim When this is ultimately achieved, next would be the lands of the unbelievers, while the whole world under the Sharia and Sunnah are capitulated. The Salafi is always under the constant threat of defensive jihad due to the resisting countries, mainly the polytheists of the United States, the Yahud of Israel, and the Crusaders, the Christians. The message from the recent Wahhabi adherents, however, have changed over time. No longer is there a wish to make the world Islamic, but to enforce a political form of Islam, which is a reaction to the current US foreign policy of the last 100 years, which has a connection to Israel and Saudi Arabia, both enemies to the Salaf. However, the majority of the Sunni school of thought has been noticeably critical of the Salafis and have openly condemned the terrorism enforced by these 
self-appointed caliphs of organizations such as Al-Qaeda, the Islamic State, and Abu Sayyaf. However, these condemnations have not been given any attention by the national media, legacy media involved with the West, but instead have been seen as the affiliates of the terrorists in which they have condemned, leading us to the current war on terrorism, which has no defined enemy, while generalizing Muslims as a whole unit endorsing terrorism. According to Gilles Keppel, the French political scientist and Arabist, Salafism is an ideology that posits that Islam has strayed from its origins. The word Salaf is Arabic for ancient one and refers to the companions of the prophet Muhammad, arguing that the faith has become decadent over the centuries. Salafists call for the restoration of authentic Islam as expressed by an adherence to its original teachings and texts. Nevertheless, the adherents of the Salafi have made themselves clear and it differs from the message we are told they are portraying, which are from Western backed idealists. They don't hate us for our freedoms. They hate us because of the current disposition toward the Palestinian cause in Israel and Western imperialism noticed in Arab countries which are self-governed and not affiliated with US-backed interests. These are the messages from those who conduct terrorist actions and or portray the messages which lead to these abhorrent acts against Americans and their affiliates while demonizing Islam as a whole. But first, the origins of the Salafis ideology and how it manifested to what we see today. Origins of the Salafi Wahhabi is said to have come from the Sunni scholar, Muhadith and jurist, Ibn Tamiyah, who belonged to the Hanbali school of jurisprudence. The Hanbali school derives Sharia predominantly from the Quran, the Hadiths, which are the sayings and customs of Muhammad, and the views of the Sahaba, Muhammad's companions. Ibn Tamiyah lived in the late 12th century to early 13th century. It was non-conforming to the traditional Sunni doctrine and Sufi ideals and practices and considered the Shia munafiq, hypocrite. Tamiyah thought of the Alawites as more heretical yet than Jews or Christians. His persecution of the Shia was from his belief that they were accused of collaborating with Christian and the Mongols. He also took part in conflicts against the Mongols and Alawites in Lebanon in 1310. He would write a treaty against the visitation of the tombs of prophets and saints in which he considered sacrilegious. In his major book, the Manjbal al-Sunnah and Nawal Baliya, he argued that they should not be considered Muslims. In fact, he should be confronted by the true Muslims. He believed that the best role models for Islamic life were from the first three generations of Islam, the Salaf. 
He would also state that jihad and martyrdom were essential for the afterlife. Tamiya would say, it is in jihad that one can live and die in ultimate happiness, both in this world and in the hereafter. Abandoning it means losing entirely or partially both kinds of happiness. He also had this to say about the nature of jihad against non-believers whose aggression against Muslims precipitated the act. It is allowed to fight people for not observing unambiguous and generally recognized obligations and prohibitions until they undertake to perform the explicitly prescribed prayers to pay zakat, to fast during the month of Ramadan, to make the pilgrimage to Mecca, and to avoid what is prohibited, such as marrying women in spite of legal impediments, eating impure things, acting unlawfully against the lives and properties of Muslims and the like. It is obligatory to take the initiative in fighting those people as soon as the prophet summons with the reason for which they are fought has reached them. But if they first attack the Muslims, then fighting them is even more urgent. As we have mentioned, when dealing with the fighting against rebellious and aggressive bandits. However, many Islamic Sunni jurists found that Ibn Tamiya's definitions of jihad too conservative. In an interview with CNN on October 27, 2014, Abdallah bin Baya, a Mauritarian politician and professor of Islamic studies at the King Abdulaziz University in Jeddah, Saudi Arabia, said this in regards to the definition of jihad. The truth is that the concept of jihad in Islam is not always synonymous with fighting. Jihad is a much wider concept. It is a sort of defending the truth and calling to it through the tongue. Almighty Allah said in the chapter of Al-Furqan, persevere in impelling them with the Quran, with a mighty impelling. That is, establish the compelling arguments and present to them the proofs, one after the other. Obviously, Reciting the Quran does not involve military actions. Hence, not every jihad is fighting, and not every fighting is jihad. Jihad is also a call for freedom. Sayyid Abdul Hakim Avasi, a notable Sunni scholar from the late 18th century, and also a mutajid, which is an individual who is qualified to exercise itajad in the evaluation of Islamic law, said this in regards to the works of Ibn Tamiya. Ibn Tamiya was a mulhid, a heretic, who damaged the religion from within by abrogating from the Quran. Sulamin ibn Abdallah ibn Tahir, a 9th century Taharid official in the services 
of the Abbasid Caliphate also said that the last Tahari governor of Tabristan said this about Tamiya. The ideas of Ibn Tamiya are worthless. He was misguided and misguiding Muslims. He deviated from the consensus of Muslims and took a heretical path. Islamic scholars stated in inanimity that he was a heretic. Qutbud Badiri wrote in his detail in his commentary on Mukshadar. Yet even after Ibn Tamiya's death in 1328, his works became influential, which made him a venerated saint of sorts. His grave, ironically, was worshiped even after his fatwa against it 300, 389 years later, the works of the late Sunni jurist was acknowledged by a young Arab from Najid in Arabia. He was Muhammad ibn Abdul al-Wahhab. Al-Wahhab was also from the Hanbali school and opposed to many popular yet contested religious practices such as the visitation to and veneration of the shrines and tombs of Muslim saints, just as Ibn Tamiya practiced. He called for Tawheed, a oneness with God, and also the Sharia as heretical. His family disowned him for his rather uncompromising beliefs. After his expulsion from the Al-Uyana in Central Arabia, he would meet with Muhammad bin Saud al-Murkin, also known as Muhammad bin Saud in the Emirate of Dadiya. Al-Wahhab had started a following of sorts who traveled with him. They believed his teachings of Islam returning to the period of Muhammad and the Quran and the Hadiths. Bin Saud received him. And while here, he formed a pact by creating the very first Saudi state the Emirate of Daria, where Al-Wahhab would be in charge of religious affairs and Al-Saud, military affairs. Madawi al-Rashid, author of A History of Saudi Arabia, wrote of Ibn Saud's declaration to Al-Wahhab, quote, this oasis is yours. Do not fear your enemies. By the name of God, if all Nejid was summoned to throw you out, we will never agree to expel you, end quote. Both would swear bayat, loyalty to one another. And in 1744, the formation of the first Saudi state was born. The partnership lasts even after 280 years had passed, in which the Wahhabi version of the Hanbali school is still the official religion within the kingdom of Saudi Arabia today. This strict adherence to Wahhabi Islam offers no compromise to any deviations such as Shia, Sufism, and other forms of monotheism. When the negative label attributed to Wahhabism in the last 30 years, the new deference is Salafi or Muwahhadidi, Unitarian. These teachings began a doctrine which has caused a major division within Islam as a whole. Al-Wahhab disagreed vehemently that the view that declaring the testimony of faith is sufficient in becoming a Muslim. Instead, 
Al-Wahhab said those who practiced this were committing shirk, polytheism, which led to the declare Muslims who engaged in shirk to be apostates or takfir. To this day, those involved with groups and schools whose adherence to Wahhabi Islam began the traditions of labeling the Shia, the Twelvers and Alawites takfiri, which has in return witnessed the deaths in hundreds of thousands of Muslims worldwide in the last 280 years. Groups like Al-Qaeda, Islamic Jihad, Abu Sayyaf, Gamma Islamiyah, Boko Haram, Jaish Muhammad, Palestinian Islamic Jihad, Hamas, and even more prominently, the Islamic State in Levant have begun the excommunication of those against the Wahhabi Salafi by calling them takfiri. The goal of the ultra-conservative groups mentioned above was to create the global caliphate governed solely by the Quran and Sunnah. However, to reach this vision, they must usurp the secular Arab governments and the influences of the Crusader countries. By the late 18th century, one man's vision of Islamic modernization in Egypt, while being heavily influenced by Ibn Tamiyah and Muhammad Ibn al-Wahhab, would transform the Islamic world throughout. His name is Muhammad Rashid Rida. Rida became a student of Egyptian jurist, author, and Freemason, Muhammad Abdul, during the late 18th century and was moved by the idea of revitalizing Islamic modernization in Egypt. Rita believed that the Muslim Ummah needed a reformation to stop its decline, rid immoral and heretical practices associated with popular Sufism. It was during Rita's period that he would refer Wahhabis as Salafi. Henry Luzeri, an assistant professor of history at Northwestern University who had authored the book, The Making of Salafism, Islamic Reform in the 12th Century, would write this of the Salafi movement in Egypt. Quote, irrespective of Rashid Rida's efforts to rehabilitate the Wahhabis, two conceptual developments became noticeable in the 1920s. The first, was the emergence of the abstract noun Salafia, which translates as Salafism. The earliest incontrovertible example I have found dates from November 1926 and comes from the Algerian journal As Sahab. In sources from the Arab East, the earliest example I was able to locate dates from February 1929. In an article about theology published in Al-Ishal, Muhannin Mad Fahaj al-Bitar wrote that the unicity of God's names and attributes was the chief concern and pinnacle of Salafism. He used the term in an undated personal letter to King Abd al-Aziz al-Saud, which on the basis of internal evidence must have been written sometime between 1926 and 1932. In it, Al-Bitar reports that he had a conversation with Rita 
during which the latter sang the praises of the Saudi state and referred to it as a religious government whose Salafism presents itself in the personality of the king, end quote. Rita's goal of creating a committee of ulema to reconcile various Sunni legal matters and to promote a single school of thought from the school of Ibn Hanbali, Rita was quoted as saying, a pure ancestral Mahadib, be it in creed or in worship and other religious practices. Rita sure has strength that was missing in the Islamic world when it came to fighting against imperialism, as Ibn Saud saw fit to neutralize British colonial rule in the land of Arabia. Unlike Ibn Tamiya, Rita argued that Salafis, Ashadis, Murtadidis, Mutazilis, Ibadis, Shias, all were Muslims, and it was the duty of the reformers to reconcile between them. Rita did not commit to labeling other Muslims takfiri, but was adamantly supportive of the Salafi ideology. The Wahhabis were known for pious adherence to religion and hostility to foreign influences. This was one of the primary reasons that British colonial rule did not extend into the Arab Gulf in the early 20th century. After World War I, Rita saw the threat, not from the polytheists, but from Western Islamic intelligentsia. The decade witnessed a failure of revitalizing the ulema with the fall of the Ottoman Empire. The nations of the loss of Iraq, Greater Syria, to the mandatory powers and the abolition of the Caliphate in 1924, with Mohammed ibn Saud attaching the Hejaz, Rita wholeheartedly supported his advance, knowing a Saudi state would bring the Salaf back to respectability within the Islamic world. British imperialism was still prominent in, after Egypt became the declared independent state in 1922. It would help create anonymity in the country. And with Rita's influence, a young band of young men from Ismailia formed a group called the Jamat al-Ikwan al-Muslimin, also known as the Muslim Brotherhood in 1928. This was to dissuade British influence finally from the country. As Ibn Saud captured Najid, the Arabs united the country and called itself Saudi Arabia. With the consolidation of Saudi rule, the Sufi institution in Mecca were closed and replaced with Rashid Rida's Salafi comrades and the Najid Ulima. Sufi influence was being curtailed and Salafia movement was being promoted on an international scale, never before seen. The Ikhwan took a more formidable role in the region in just 10 years, with Rida being the ultimate guide. Hassan al-Banna, the founder of the Brotherhood, became Egypt's foremost leader of the Salaf movement. Albana and the university students of Al-Azhar witnessed the continued oppression of the British daily. They focused on the sovereignty of Egypt's latest declaration of independence, but they certainly didn't feel free. 
Egypt at the time was led by the despot secular ruler of King Farouk. Also, along with the ruling British mandate, the Egyptian pious have become increasingly dissatisfied with just how things were transpiring. Albana endeavored to bring home the reforms through institution building, relentless activism at the grassroots level, and a reliance on mass communication. His religion was similar to Ibn Tamiyam in that jihad was not just about the conflict of the heart, but against the illegitimate colonial runes, the kafir. Jihad was about the sword. Al-Bana would say, Muslims are compelled to humble themselves before non-Muslims and are ruled by unbelievers. Their lands have been trampled over and their honor besmirched. Their adversaries are in charge of their affairs and the rights of their religion have fallen into abeyance with their own dominant domains. Hence, it has become an individual's obligation, which there is no evading on every Muslim to prepare his equipment, to make up his mind to engage in jihad and to get ready for it until the opportunity is ripe and God decrees. The Brotherhood was also active in the Palestine conflict between 1936 and 1939. The Muslim Brotherhoods launched a pro-Palestinian campaign which contributed to making the Palestine issue a widespread Muslim concern. The brothers carried out a fundraising campaign said to have relied upon donations from the rural and urban working classes rather than wealthy Egyptians. Another native Egyptian from the Musha Asuyat government, Saeed Kutub, had just the House of Science College in 1934. Kutub worked in Al Arhana newspaper. He wrote in Al Rasia and Al Tafaka magazines. He worked as an Arabic teacher, then as an employee at the Council of Ministry of Education, and after that, as a technical su supervisor at the ministry. He's also highly interested in Egyptian literature from the historic period. He had a special disdain, however, for schools that specialized in religious studies only and sought to demonstrate that local schools that held regular academic classes as well as classes in religion were more beneficial to their pupils than religious schools with lopsided curricula. His position, however, would radically change in just a few short years. Arab nationalism would take a strengthened position after World War I, as Britain had become a major sponsor of Arab nationalism throughout an ideology primarily as a weapon to use against the powers of the Ottoman Empire. Albana was assassinated in 1949, but the Brotherhood, even as it was banned in Egypt, had grown to neighboring countries such as Iraq, Syria, Jordan, Lebanon, even in France, Germany, and the United States. The growing presence of Islamic uniformity and its continuing disdain for non-Islamic governments reached countries where Islamism was not present ever before. By 1950, after Qutub's return from the United States to study at the Colorado State 
College of Education in Greeley, Kutub was quite alarmed at what he had experienced in everyday American life. He soon published The America That I Have Seen, where he became explicitly critical of things he observed in the United States. In one chapter, he was critical of the American's arts. Quote, the American is primitive in his artistic taste, both in what he enjoys as art and in his own artistic works. Jazz music is the music of choice. That is the music that the Negroes invented to satisfy their primitive inclinations, as well as their desire to be noisy on the one hand and to excite bestial tendencies on the other. The American's intoxication in jazz music does not reach its full completion until the music is accompanied by singing that is as coarse and obnoxious as the music itself. Meanwhile, the noise of the instruments and the voices mounts as it rings in the ears to the unbearable degree. The agitation of the multitude increases and the voices of approval mount and their psalms and palms ring out in vehement continuous applause that all but deafens the ears." End quote. It was after this shocking experience in American lifestyle that Qutub's attitude toward Islamism had changed. No longer did he hold previous beliefs that socialism was to part of the rising Islamic modernity in Arab culture. The way to saving it was through Islam itself. With Gamal Abdul Nasser as the president of Egypt, Hafez al-Assad in Syria, and Faoud Chab in Lebanon, all three would become prominent adherents of the Arab nationalist ideology in which the Arab countries saw fit to nationalize the oil and take away the radical influences of the United States and Great Britain. The Brotherhood was tolerated in most countries, but banned in Egypt. Qutub would later become a thord in the side of Nasser and was jailed for it. While at Torah prison, he would write some of the most influential works of his career, Millstones and In the Shade of the Quran. After Qutub's release in 1964, he was once again jailed on the charges of attempting to overthrow the Egyptian government. He was hanged on August 29, 1966. This act of martyrdom reverberated throughout the Islamic world and Qutub's works became globally known. It also became the momentum for the Islamists to rise out of obscurity. With continued subjugation of the Palestinians by Israel, the ideological threat to Nasser's Arab secular government and the Western influences within secular Arab nations, the Islamic schools of Ibn Hanbal and the Wahhabi Arabs began spending hundreds of millions of dollars to local and foreign madrasas all throughout the world. But on June 5th, 1967, the Arab governments of Egypt, Syria, and Jordan have preemptively attacked Israel. In just six days, all three were defeated. This was the beginning of the end of Arab socialism. The fight for jihad through the sword began as Saudi Arabia under its Wahhabi school of thought and the Gulf states with its oil boom financing, began the Dawah, the invitation of Wahhabi Islam and the Salafis across the Middle East and Southeast Asia, even into the United States. The Salafis was tasked 
regarding Albana's primary goal of instituting the Quran and Sunnah, constituting as a perfect way of life for the social and political organizations, while Islamic governments must also be based on this system and eventually unified as a caliphate. The growth of the Salafi Wahhabi sects in the countries of Iraq, Libya, Qatar, and Egypt were much more noticeable, while the Shia minority basically stunted in overall growth. In Adid Dashi was Arab nationalism and Islamism, competitive past, uncertain future, the secular ideology of nationalism and Islam should have had a cooperative relationship, not one of conflict, as both sides were pan-Arabic. Quote, similarly, the radical and militant activists we call Islamists, indeed all Muslims, whether Arabs or non-Arabs, could not but admit to the central role of the Arabs in their religion. After all, Islam was born in the Arabian Peninsula. The prophet Muhammad was Arab and God's message was, was revealed in Arabic. One would think that the two radical movements would share a cooperative and complementary relationship. Instead, it has been competitive and sometimes outright hostile. The essence of the divide has not been over which narrative was the correct one. Rather, it had been over primordiality, which of the two ideologies was the more authentic and had pride of place in the hearts and minds of Arabs, end quote. With the death of Nasser in 1970, the lingering defeat of the Arab nations by Israel and the U.S. influence in the kingdom of Saudi Arabia, the imams of the Olima of the Wahhabi sect began to spread the ideology. But the Qutubists, the followers of Sayyid Qutub, wanted much more. They wanted a true caliphate and to end, finally, the disastrous U.S.-Israeli foreign politics in the region, which was growing. It was no longer just the adherents of Ibn Tamiya and al-Wahhab. These people were more politically inclined to use their definitions of what it is to have true Islam in the Middle East, with the Salaf as the only school. With a generation of young Salafis learning at madrasas in Riyadh and Islamabad, Pakistan, a new generation, even more or less venerable Islamists, began to recruit all over the region. Using Islamic charities, usually funded by Saudi Arabia, like the Jamaat al-Tabligi, a Pakistan missionary group, the Muslim World League, a pan-Islamic NGO based in Mecca, Saudi Arabia, and the Nadutal Olima, an Indonesian charitable body funding schools and hospitals, as well as organizing communities to help alleviate poverty. Saudi Arabia, led by its appointed king, Khalid ibn Abdulaziz al-Soud, saw fit to modernize the country by improving on its infrastructure. But the imams and the Salafis thought he was a neglectful leader, ineffective at best, and too prone to deal with the Americans. Meanwhile, in Egypt, Anwar Sadat was beginning to turn the country around from its former predecessor, Nasser. Sadat released many of the Muslim Brotherhood from its prisons 
and wanted to improve in the relationship with them while also trying to return the favor against Israel by saving face and engaging militarily. In Iran, Mohammad Reza Pahlavi was simply seen as a puppet from the United States, while former Prime Minister Mohammad Mossadegh was deposed by a CIA-led coup in 1953. Mossadegh was committed to nationalizing the Iranian petroleum industry controlled by the Anglo-Iranian oil company. According to an article published by British outlet The Guardian on August 19, 2013, quote, Britain, and in particular, Sir Anthony Eden, the foreign secretary regarded Mossadegh as a serious threat to its strategic and economic interests after the Iranian leader nationalized the British Anglo-Iranian oil company, latterly known as BP. But the United Kingdom needed US support. The Eisenhower administration in Washington was easily persuaded, end quote. In Egypt, Sadat's meeting with Israeli Prime Minister Menachem Begin would enrage the fervent Takfiris from the local schools in Cairo. A number of insiders from the Egyptian army would hold secret meetings with local radical proponents of a fundamentalist group called Al-Jihad, or the Tanzim Al-Jihad, which was formed in 1980 from the merger of two clusters of Islamic groups, a Cairo branch under Mohammed Abdul Salam Farag, and from the Upper Egypt branch under Karem Zudi. The Camp David Accords held at US President Carter's private retreat in Maryland. The meeting was to address the issue of repairing relations between Egypt and Israel, as well as addressing the issue of the Palestinians. Mohammed Abd al-Salam Farad, a member of the Al-Jihad group, began operations which implanted a military strategy to take over Arab government by force if they did not abide by the Quran and Sunnah. In his document, The Neglected Duty, Farad stated in the summary that the primary target for jihad should be local regimes. He coined the term near enemy to describe such targets in contrast to far enemy, which are the United States and Israel. He built on Qutub's idea that modern Islamic societies represented Jalia, Jalalia, the state of ignorance that per pervaded in the pre-Islamic Arab world, and used the ideas of Ibn Tamiya to blame this on modern apostate Islamic rulers. This would be the primary ideology endorsed by one of Farad's closest associates and members of al-Jihad, later renamed to Egyptian Islamic Jihad, Dr. Ayman al-Zwahari. Since Sadat did not wish for Egypt to be ruled by the Sharia, he had to be executed, in which the Egyptian radicals would then take over the media and government and began its version of the caliphate. Sadat was assassinated by members of the al-Jihad, led by former military members, Khalid Islambouli, a second lieutenant in the army, along with junior sergeant Abdul Hamid Abdul Salam, Corporal Atta Tail Hamida Rashil, and Corporal Hussein Abbas, who leapt from their trucks during a military procession in which Sadat was numerous times shot in the head and chest. 
Immediately, the crackdowns began. Over 1,300 people were arrested for even being indirectly involved with knowing their assailants. High-ranking leaders of known radical groups such as Ayman al-Swahari, Mohammed ibn al-Saddam Faraj, Isam al-Kamari, Rafai Taha, and Omar Abdel Rahman, a blind sheikh and co-leader of the Gamma Islamia, were all arrested and held at the infamous Torah prison. Some of these men would later be brutally tortured by the Egyptian ISSI, which would become far more radicalized into fighting against Arab, secular Arab regimes in the years to come. Egypt's problems were just beginning, and in the next 30 years, the radical Takfiris would begin tasking terrorism operations toward the government led by Sadat's predecessor and a much more staunch anti-Islamist than Sadat, Hosni Mubarak. Mubarak was also injured during the assassination. The Islamists with their emirs and imams were more vocal about Western imperialism and their affiliations with secular Arab governments. The tensions in the Middle East came to an absolute peak not seen in the modern period. The Takfiri awakening had reached its zenith. By 1979, the origins of radical fundamentalism, which was unheard of before, began its jihad with the draw of the sword. On November 20, 1979, Juhaman al-Otabi, a former Saudi army and member of the al-Jama al-Salafiya al-Mutashibi, the Salafi group which commands good and forbades evil, led a band of Salafist rebels, which approximately numbered over 500 and stormed the Grand Mosque prayer area, which were about to be led in the Fajr Salat, the dawn prayer. They immediately locked the gates and killed two Saudi policemen who were only armed with clubs at the time, as the militants armed with AK-47s under their rooms stormed the compound. Immediately, they controlled the large prayer area and commanded the microphone, which can be heard throughout the seven acre Grand Mosque compound. The battle ended on December 4th as the remaining militants were near gassed and were eventually overtaken by the Saudi National Guard and the army. The mosque, however, was under construction by a group called the Saudi Bin Laden Group. A young Saudi who witnessed the expulsion of the mosque would later say that he was impressed by what was happening. His name was Osama bin Laden. But what led to the attack within the mosque by al-Otabi? The insinuation from the radical dissenter was that the Saudi kingdom lacked religion. Otabi would later say, the ruling al-Sud dynasty had lost its legitimacy because it was corrupt, ostentatious, and had destroyed Saudi culture by an aggressive policy of westernization. According to Stephanie LaCroix, the fundamentalist principle were growing in the kingdom and the Salafis were unrecognized within Saudi politics. She would write in the Al-Abani revolutionary approach to Hadiths in the spring of 2006, quote, many of the members and especially its scholars 
were either of Bedouin descent or non-Saudi residents and were thus marginalized in the religious field. Their activism came in part at least as a response to their marginalization. One of the main religious figures of the group who was lucky enough to have been thrown out of the kingdom in 1978 and therefore did not take part in the 1979 events was Mukbil al-Wadi, who subsequently reestablished himself in the native Yemen and became the country's most prominent Salafi scholar, end quote. According to the Middle East Wahhabi Authority, author David Commons, the justification for the raid comes from corruption and a betrayal against Islam. In his book, The Wahhabi Mission in Saudi Arabia, on page 161, quote, Juhamin said that his justification for their siege was that the House of Saud had lost its legitimacy through corruption and imitation of the West, an echo of his father's charge in 1921 against former Saudi King Ibn Saud. Unlike earlier anti-monarchist dissidents in the kingdom attacked the Saudi ulema for failing to protest against policies that betrayed Islam and accused them of accepting the rule of an infidel state and offering loyalty to corrupt rulers in exchange for honors and riches, end quote. The Salafi Wahhabi Muslims no longer were comfortable with just allowed to be free from the shackles while under the prisons of Egypt and Saudi Arabia. They wanted the fulfillment of the true brotherhood, the Ikhwan, and became a political force within the Arab political spectrum. They wanted the caliphate of their time. The goal of Ibn Tabiyah, Muhammad Ibn al-Wahhab, and Hassan al-Banna's intentions all rolled into one singular Islamo-nationalist monarchy. The Saudi kingdom were shocked to its core. Never before had anyone openly challenged the ruling monarchy before or since. It would change the country's view of the religious force within the walls of the kingdom and motivate figures who are watching behind the scenes, including a young Saudi engineer student named Osama bin Laden. In one of his pamphlets against the Saudi ruling family, he said they had desecrated the Haram when the crisis could have been solved peacefully. I still remember to this day the traces of the tracks on the Haram's floor tiles. It was also clear to the young bin Laden that the Kingdom Saudi Seven, which are the powerful alliance of the Sevenfold Brothers within the Saudi family, that they were not representative of the true Muslims of the Salaf. Notwithstanding, the continued neglect by Arab governments regarding the Palestinian problem by the Israelis and their close affiliations with the United States were the ultimate hypocrisy witnessed by the Salaf. In just a single month, Afghanistan would take center stage for an Islamic awakening not seen since Ibn Saud captured the cities of Najad and Hejaz in 1927 from the Hashemites. When the Soviet-backed People's Democratic Party of Afghanistan, the PDPA, revolted against the rule of Afghan President Mohammad Dawood Khan on April 27, 1978, and deposed him, the communist Pashtuns, backed by the Soviet's darling Nur Mohammad Taraki, once hailed as the Afghanistan's Maxim Gorky, decentralized into internal revolt 
leading the country into a whirlwind of clashes with the communist-backed government and an open house slaughter of the native Pashtuns and religious Hanafi. The Nahafi school of Islam or the Sunni school of thought and considered the more liberal of the four Sunni beliefs. This coup was led by Taraki's competence from the PDPA and from Hafizullah Amin and Babra Kamal. However, soon after Taraki positioned himself as president, Amin began to implement family members in specific areas of government. Taraki gave thought that he could also become a victim of a coup himself. The revolution also witnessed an authoritarian-led military, which was used to strike against its detractors, mainly against the mullahs. Robert Kaplan, who wrote Soldiers of God, with Islamic warriors in Afghanistan and Pakistan, quote, the soldiers knock on the doors in the middle of the night, so common in many Arab and African countries, was little known in Afghanistan, where a central government simply lacked the power to enforce its will outside of Kabul. Taraki's coup changed all that. Between April 1978 and the Soviet invasion of Afghanistan in December of 1979, Afghan communists executed 27,000 political prisoners at the sprawling Pali Charaki prison, six miles east of Kabul. Many of the victims were village mullahs and headmen who were obstructing the modernization and secularization of the intensely religious Afghan countryside. By Western standards, this was a salutary idea in the abstract, but it was carried out in such a violent way that it alarmed even the Soviets." End quote. Meanwhile, the Americans criticized the coup led by the Soviet-backed PDPA and became alarmed that the Soviets were trying to take a power play in the communist takeover of the Middle East. This notion was impeccably and voice fully shared by the National Security Advisor under Carter, Zygmunt Brzezinski, who had later authored the book, which reiterated a US response to a Soviet military goal of capturing the Caspian oil sea reserves. In his book, the Grand Chessboard, American Primacy, and its Geostrategic Imperatives. However, soon after, Amin would have Taraki arrested and later assassinated, along with 28 members of his family arrested and imprisoned. Even after the Soviets had received reports that Kamal and Amin wished to forcibly expel Taraki and become the new heads of government. However, Amin was not liked by the Afghan people. During his rule, opposition to the communist regime increased and the government lost control of the countryside, even after trying to repair relations with the Afghan Hanafi movement after years of oppression under the brutal Taraki government. The United States warned China and Britain about the communists wish to take over the country. A US ambassador to Afghanistan J. Bruce Amistutz warned that the country was on the verge of a civil war. The Soviets were still not pleased with Amin, but Taraki was the perfect choice to lead the country because of his close affinity and belief in socialist realism. Amin was not aware of the Soviets' wish to depose him and push Kamal to lead the country back to communist control. The Soviet Politburo were guided by a special commission on Afghanistan which consisted of Yuri Andropov, 
the KGB chairman, Andrei Gormyoko, the Minister of Foreign Affairs, Defense Ministry Dmitry Ustinov, and Boris Pominov, the head of the International Department of the Central Committee, who were all adamantly proposed against the notion that Taraki being assassinated began to make the decision to oust Amin. Meanwhile, Pakistan's Inter-Service Intelligence, the ISI, began training the Mujahideen in Peshawar in Islamabad to revolt against the communist-backed regime, for they feared that if the Soviets took over Afghanistan, they would surely be next. This operation was led by Pakistan's president, Zia-ul-Haq, and ISI Lieutenant General Akhtar Abdul Rahman. Rahman was put in charge of overall operations regarding the training of the Mujahid, who would later merge with Operation Cyclone, a program funded by the United States under the Central Intelligence Agency in 1979. In a document entitled U.S. Analysis of the Soviet War in Afghanistan Declassified on October 9, 2001, quote, CIA covert action worked through Pakistan intelligence services to reach Afghani rebel groups. That operation began after December 1979 when Russian forces mounted a surprise intervention in Afghanistan. Fighting between CIA-funded Afghans and the Russians with their Kalk allies continued through 1988. At that time, Moscow, having suffered substantial losses and incurred excessive costs in the country, decided to withdraw. The last Soviet forces left Afghanistan in early 1989, but warfare continued as the rebel forces contested with the Kalk regime for the control of Kabul." End quote. Mohammed Hanif bin Hassan, a fellow at the S. Rajaratnam School of International Studies, would pen an article about the Islamic revitalization in Afghanistan and how it would ultimately lead to apolitical fanaticism. Quote, the precipitant or dramatic event in this case refers to the Soviet invasion of Afghanistan in 1979. The invasion became a major source of grievance among Muslims. A resulting impact on Afghan Muslims provided an opportunity for active mobilization of Muslims all over the world. The Soviet invasion also generated international support for the Afghan Jihad from the US and its allies who viewed it from a strategic viewpoint as a means to contain and defeat the Soviet Union during the Cold War period. Validation of the relationship between the success of the mobilization and Soviet invasion of Afghanistan is found across many studies in the field of political violence. Tor Bajoro's conclusion on the root causes of terrorism is particularly instructive. He wrote in Root Causes of Terrorism that repression by foreign forces or occupation by colonial powers has given rise to a great many national liberation movements that have sought recourse in terrorist tactics, guerrilla warfare, and other political means. Despite their use of terrorist methods, some liberation movements enjoy considerable support and legitimacy among their own constituencies, and sometimes also from a form of international 
public opinion, end quote. The Saudis were investing hundreds of millions through the Muslim World Leagues and its affiliates throughout the world, while Pakistan were also providing arms and training to Afghan Mujahideen. Many tribal sects under leaders such as Gubadin Hekbatars, Hizb-e-Islami, Abdul Rasul Sayyab's Idahad al-Islami, and Jalaluddin Haqqani's Haqqani Network. Meanwhile, a Texas Senator, Charlie Wilson, began a conduit of funneling millions in aid, along with an array of Stinger missiles through the CIA. This was known as Operation Cyclone. Some of these armaments went to the Haqqani network, whom Wilson revered and even exclaimed that he was a goodness personified. Many influential authors of Islamic literature and venerated imams came by the hundreds to the landing strip in Peshawar. One such leading figure was a Palestinian imam and Sharia learned teacher, a sheikh, Abdul Yusuf Azam, who go on and build an organizational charity called the Maktab al Kidamat, the Afghan Services Bureau, which catered to receiving, financing, and training in Islamic studies and guerrilla studies to foreign Arabs coming to join the Afghans in the war against the Soviets. Bin Laden was the primary financier of the Bureau, but Azam and his close friend Abdullah Anas were the creators of the idea itself. Inside the United States, many bureaus would begin operating in the local mosques around the country. One actual building resided in Brooklyn, New York City, which was an extension of the Maktab al-Kidabat called the Al-Kifa Refugee Center, located on Atlantic Avenue in Brooklyn, New York. This foundation was created by Fawaz Dharma, an imam at the mosque, which is right next door, the al Farouk. The bureau was once located inside the mosque and later became its own building later on. Millions of dollars funneled through to charitable Muslims worldwide who were donating to the cause of the Afghans would also become host to a number of former Mujahideen fighters who were still looking to spread the offensive jihad they learned from the Takfiri Imams in Pakistan. Azam would at times travel to the United States along with other tribal Afghans to recruit young Muslim men to engage the Soviet enemy in Afghanistan. The intelligence services such as the FBI and CIA began drafting reports about a growing ultra-theological enemy, which could be a danger to American interests abroad and even within the United States itself. As the Israeli-Palestinian issues continued to regress with the United States supporting the Israelis, the issue would become much more noticed by the entity who wished to continue to jihad after the Soviet withdrawal. With the warring, barren-laden jihadis leaving home, they were still looking to draw the sword. Abdul Anas, an Algerian, would later witness the turning of the Afghan cause for jihad to something far more insidious. In an article written by Myra McDonald, dated March 4th, 2019, the article entitled, Why Did It All Go Wrong? An Arab veteran of the anti-Soviet jihad speaks in which she interviewed Anas, quote, it was in the fractious environment of Afghanistan's civil war that an extreme form of Islamism, including the Takfiri ideology that thrives on declaring other Muslims apostates, 
took root. New Arab volunteers arrived in Peshawar who had nothing to do with the original anti-Soviet jihad. Both older and newer arrivals took strides in the Afghan factionalism, ignoring advice from Azam that they should refuse to be sucked into Afghan infighting. Among these was Osama bin Laden. According to Anas, bin Laden had initially come across as an energetic, dynamic man with exquisite manners and refinement. Anas had started out liking him for being a rich Saudi who chose not to indulge in the life of a playboy. But somewhere along the line, bin Laden had been overtaken by hubris, despite having played a minor role in the anti-Soviet jihad, he started to believe he was the solution, not just to the Afghan conflict, but to the problems of the Muslim community or Ummah worldwide." End quote. The Egyptian radicals who were imprisoned for the assassination of Amwar Sadat in 1981 were released from Tor prison. These were the Takfiris, the Sunni and Shia populace warned many years prior. Ayman al-Zwahiri, Sayyid Imam al-Sharif, and Abu Hafsa al-Masri, all devoted followers of Ibn Tamir's hadiths and Sayyid Qutb's idea of a revolutionary jihad against the secular Arab nations. It was Sayyid Imam al-Sharif, also nicknamed Dr. Fadl, who had published a text for jihadis to school them in the proper way to fight battles and preached that the real objective was not victory over the Soviets, but martyrdom and eternal salvation. His doctrine entitled The Essential Guide for Preparation appeared in 1988. This would become the guide to which jihadists would operate for the decades to come, even to the present day. In Lawrence Wright's article, the Rebellion Within, an Al-Qaeda Mastermind Questions Terrorism, which was in the New Yorker in 2016, quote, the guide begins with the premise that jihad is the natural state of Islam. Muslims must always be in conflict with non-believers. Dr. Fadl asserts was resorting to peace only in moments of abject weakness because jihad is above all a religious exercise. There are divine rewards to be gained. He who gives money for jihad will be compensated in heaven, but not as much as the person who acts. The greatest prize goes to the martyr. Every able body believer is obligated to engage in jihad since most Muslim countries are ruled by infidels who must be forcibly removed in order to bring about an Islamic state. The way to bring an end to the ruler's unbelief is armed rebellion, end quote. Azam had preached defensive jihad, but wasn't known for its militaristic view of what the war should be. The idea behind defensive jihad made it an individual duty for every Muslim to resist foreign aggression. This did not resonate with the more fresher jihadists who were graduating from the madrasas at Peshawar and Islamabad, who were more inclined to follow the ideas promoted by the Takfiri schools reverberated by the Egyptians 
Al Zuhari and Al Sharif. During the course of the end of the Soviet Afghan conflict, a young Pashtun named Muhammad Mullah Omar was beginning to his studies at the Jamia Uloom Al Uslima, a Diobandi learning facility, where the movement is said to have been influenced by Salafism in Afghanistan and Pakistan, which was prim fun primarily funded from Saudi Arabia. Omar would later become the primary founder of the leading movement in Afghanistan in the years to come. They were called the Taliban. The Takfiris from Egypt, Saudi Arabia, and Pakistan believed in an ultra-nationalist form of offensive jihad aimed at expanding the territory of Islam as a collective duty and to force the murtadun, the disbeliever, to accept Islam. In direct contradiction, which according to the Quran, teaches the opposite. From Al-Baqarah, Surat 2-256, the Sahih International, quote, these shall be no compulsion in acceptance of the religion. The right course has become clear from the wrong. So whoever disbelieves in Taghut and believes in Allah has grasped the most trustworthy handhold with no break in it. And Allah is hearing and knowing, end quote. In 1979, the Soviets, mediated by Pakistan, withdrew from the capital of Kabul. And by 1990, the Soviets were fully withdrawn. Only the government under Mohammad Najibullah, who deterred a full communist withdrawal of the country, would end up drafting legislation which labeled Afghanistan an Islamic country. Islamic principles were embedded in the 1987 constitution. For instance, Article two of the constitution stated that Islam was the state religion. And Article 73 stated that the head of state had to be born in a Muslim Afghan family. The 1990 constitution stated that Afghanistan was an Islamic state and the last references to communism were removed. Bin Laden's heroic tales of building roads and ditches for the Afghan Mujahideen fighters weren't forgotten. The quiet insular Saudi returned back to his native country in Arabia. Once there, he was made aware of a rumor that the Iraqi Ba'athist army may invade the Saudi kingdom next after it had invaded into Kuwait. Bin Laden went to King Fahd Ibn Abdulaziz al-Sud and promised a victory just like he did against the Soviets with the ragged jihadist Mujahideen from his Arab camp, the Al-Masada. The offer, however, was rejected before a high Saudi council meeting that included Prince Turkey bin Faisal al-Sud, the head of the Saudi General Intelligence Directorate. King Fahd agreed to back the United States during the Gulf War and his Saudi citizenship was revoked in 1994 which enraged bin Laden more so. The unbelievers, the Crusader army, was allowed to station in all the holiest land of Islam, Mecca and Medina. An outrage which the kingdom felt and the house arrested bin Laden while freezing all his assets. Bin Laden was later quoted as saying in regards to the kingdom inviting non-Muslims to enter the Holy Land, for the Muslim Saudi monarchy to invite non-Muslims American troops to fight against the Muslim Iraqi soldiers 
was a serious violation of Islamic law. Bin Laden was invited to the Sudan under the authority of Hassan al-Turabi, leader of the National Islamic Front, a Sharia-based organization created by university students who wanted a country based on the Quran and Sunnah. Bin Laden accepted the offer and brought his Egyptian takfiris and members of the al-Masada camp, which were in the process of creating an organization which was to train Afghans and foreign Arabs to fight against the remaining communists in Afghanistan, the last holdouts. The name of the group would later be Al-Qaeda, the base. The base, which was in reference to Al-Masada, the base of operations, which was located in the Paktia province, which provided military training to Arabs only, the only Arab training camp in Afghanistan. In February 26, 1993, inside the North Tower of the World Trade Center, a rider truck parked at the B2 level with its passengers relocating to another vehicle. Just a few short three minutes later, a tremendous explosion knocked out power for blocks. The blast killed six and wounded over 1,000. It was the second known terrorist attack by Islamists in the country. After an FBI investigation, subsequent arrests in less than two years, everyone involved was apprehended and sentenced, including one man, Abdul Basit Karim, who would later be known as Ramzi Youssef, would give a pre-sentencing statement. This terrorist operation wasn't about the United States' religious freedoms or secular law. It was something vastly different. It was a response to American imperialism. He would tell the court, quote, you were the first one who killed innocent people. And you were the first one who introduced this type of terrorism to the history of mankind. When you dropped an atomic bomb, which killed tens of thousands of women and children in Japan. And when you killed over a hundred thousand people, most of them civilians in Tokyo with fire bombings, you killed them by burning them to death. And you killed civilians in Vietnam with chemicals, as with the so-called orange agent. You killed civilians, innocent people, not soldiers, innocent people, every single war you went. You went to wars more than any country in this century. And then you have the nerve to talk about killing innocent people. And now you have invented a new way to kill innocent people. You have so-called economic embargo which kills nobody other than children and elderly people, and which other than Iraq, you have been placing the economic embargo on Cuba and other countries for over 35 years. The government in its summations and opening statement said that I was a terrorist. Yes, I am a terrorist and I am proud of it. And I support terrorism so long as it was against the United States government and against Israel because you are more than terrorists. You are the ones who invented terrorism and using it every day. You are liars, butchers, and hypocrites." End quote. This was unique in regards to the earlier motivations of Ibn Tamir and Muhammad Ibn Abdullah Wahhab, who were only concerned about the propagation of the Hanbali Salafi school of thought through dawah. 
the Salafi movement was now concerned about expanding the caliphate borders past the Mediterranean and Persian Gulf and into the lands of the Crusaders. Many of the Sunni and Shia scholars, however, vehemently rejected the teachings of Ibn Tamiyah and these latest jihadis like bin Laden and al-Zawahiri. One critic of bin Laden came ironically from a Wahhabi cleric and Grand Mufti of Saudi Arabia, Abid al-Aziz ibn Baz, the Grand Mufti of Saudi Arabia. He called out bin Laden due to Ibn Baz's blessings that the Oslo Accords between the Palestinian Liberation Organization, the PLO, and the Israeli government was adamantly opposed to the use of terrorism. The letter bin Laden wrote, which was openly critical of Ibn Baz, led the Saudi Mufti to respond in kind. Quote, it is obligatory to destroy and annihilate these publications that have emanated from Al-Faiq or from Al-Masih or from others of the callers of the falsehood like bin Laden and those like him and not to be lenient towards them. It is obligatory to advise them, to guide them towards the truth and to warn them against this falsehood. It is not permissible for anyone to cooperate with them in this evil. It is obligatory upon them to be sincere and to come back to guidance and to leave alone and abandon this falsehood. So my advice to al-Masiari, al-Faiq, and bin Laden, and all those who traverse their ways is to leave alone this disastrous path and to fear Allah and to beware of his vengeance and his anger and to return to guidance and to repent to Allah for whatever has proceeded from them. For Allah, glorified, has promised his repentant servants that he will accept their repentance and be good to them. End quote. Shortly thereafter, in 1993, Omar Abdul Rahman was arrested through an FBI sting for his alleged participation into what is known as the Landmarks bombing plot. He, too, was convinced of a conspiracy to murder President Egyptian President Hosni Mubarak and solicitation to attack U.S. military installations and a conspiracy to conduct bombings inside the United States. Rahman, like al-Zawahari, came from the Egyptian prisons where the teachings of al-Wahhab and Qutub were prominent. Rahman was invested in the near-enemy approach, which failed and caused quite the backlash by Egyptian society under his organization, the Gamal Islamiyah which massacred over 150 visitors to Luxor in 1997 later. One of Rahman's devoted associates was Ali Muhammad, an Egyptian-born student and former U.S. soldier who had later trained Mujahideen fighters in Afghanistan, all under the watchful eye of the CIA. He would become a triple agent spy of sorts, working for the FBI, CIA, and bin Laden. He would end up living in San Francisco, acting as a military trainer in small arms fire for members of the Masjid al-Salam Mosque in Jersey City, New Jersey, where Rahman had preached, and also at the Fal Farouk in Brooklyn. Rahman's influences primarily came from Ibn Tamiya and Sayyid Qutb's writings, in which he became a strict anti-Zionist, while also becoming openly critical of American foreign policy. 
When he graduated from the Al-Hazar University in 1964, he became openly critical of Egyptian President Gamal Abdel Nasser and Egypt's socialist ideals as well. A pattern was beginning to emerge with these radical takfiri Muslims in Egypt and Saudi Arabia. And it was in direct response to US foreign policy and its geopolitics. The FBI were ill-equipped to deal with Islamic fundamentalists and had a small unit dedicated to this task. Nobody outside the United States would even know what they were about, what they wanted, and why they were conducting this act of terrorism. Even after the World Trade Center bombing in 1993, the FBI abrasively concluded the matter finished, that the terrorist cell responsible diminished. They couldn't have been any more wrong on this assessment. Meanwhile, in the Sudan, Bin Laden and Ayman al-Swahiri began building training camps there with all the guidance of al-Turabi. Bin Laden also spent tens of millions building infrastructure in Khartoum and Soba. The CIA began monitoring his activities there. Meanwhile, the United States began its assault on Iraq under the Gulf War, which saw the slaughter of over 500,000 men and women and children with the economic sanctions imposed by President George W. Bush. It led to a national outcry from the Muslim community and silence from his Arab neighbors. This slight would not be forgotten by bin Laden or by al-Zawahari. And by 1996, as the United States forced the Sudanese government, led by President Omar al-Bashir, to evict bin Laden from the country, the Salafi Takfiris began their war against U.S. imperialism. U.S. Sudan Ambassador Timothy Carney had instructions to push the al-Bashir government to expel bin Laden. Carney, however, had no legal basis to ask for more from the Sudanese since at this time, there was no indictment outstanding against bin Laden in any country. Bin Laden returned back to Afghanistan, which was now in a civil war between the Taliban and the warring Afghan factions under Gulbuddin Hekbatar and Juladin Haqqani and the communist-backed Najibullah government Islamic traditions require a host Muslim country to always accept an Islamic visitor. It is considered an insult to deny one a home. Meanwhile, in the Balkans, the jihadis found solace knowing that the Soviets confused their conflict in Chechnya, where Al-Qaeda fighters relocated to and from Afghanistan. Years of influence from al-Zawahari made bin Laden a reckless mindset. For now, the near enemy would be on hold. A defeat of the Soviet Union meant that the United States could easily be defeated as well. History, however, wasn't kind to those who foolishly believed that they were bigger than what they were worth. In 1996, Bin Laden, along with a group of Salafi leaders, declared his first fatwa against the United States. It wouldn't be his last. The fatwa entitled declaration of war against the Americans occupying the land of the two holy places. Bin Laden's main grievance was against the Saudi kingdom allowing the polytheist United States to remain in the land of the holiest places, Mecca and Medina. Bin Laden's view was that the evils of the Middle East arose from America's attempt 
to take over the region and from its support for Israel. Saudi Arabia had been turned into an American colony. The Saudi petrodollar helped to shape the Islamic fundamentalist landscape, influenced with the Salafi teachings. Tens of millions of dollars donated by those impressed by Bin Laden's willingness to defy the kingdom and fight against the United States and Mullah Omar's Taliban fight against the communists in Afghanistan. Salafi-oriented movements such as the Abu Sayyaf in the Philippines, the armed Islamic group in Algeria, Hamas in Israel, Taliban in Afghanistan and Pakistan, and Al-Qaeda in Afghanistan. Yet it was only Al-Qaeda which catered to Faraj's far enemy approach, due in part to al-Zawahiri and the Egyptian takfiris who brought with them their vitriol against the West that their fight against Mubarak in Egypt was put on hold. The far enemy approach was now prominent. In 1998, Bin Laden issued a second fatwa against the United States entitled Declaration of War Against the Americans Occupying the Land of the Two Holy Places. This time, Bin Laden declared that Muslims should kill Americans and Jews wherever you find them. His statement was clear, quote, first, for over seven years, the United States has been occupying the lands of Islam in the holiest of places, the Arabian Peninsula, plundering its riches, dictating to its rulers, humiliating its people, terrorizing its neighbors, and turning its bases in the peninsula into a spearhead through which to fight the neighboring Muslim peoples. If some people have in the past argued about the fact of the occupation, all the people of the peninsula have now acknowledged it. The best proof of this is the Americans continuing aggression against the Iraqi people using the peninsula as a staging post, even though all its rulers are against their territories being used to that end, but they are helpless. Second, despite the great devastation inflicted on the Iraqi people by the Crusader Zionist Alliance, and despite the huge number of those killed, which has exceeded 1 million, Despite all this, the Americans are once again trying to repeat the horrific massacres as though they are not content with the protracted blockade imposed after the ferocious war or the fragmentation and devastation. So here they come to annihilate what is left of this people and to humiliate their Muslim neighbors. Third, if the Americans aims where behind these wars are religious and economic, the aim is also to serve the Jews' petty state and divert attention from its occupation of Jerusalem and murder millions of Muslims there. The best proof of this is their eagerness to destroy Iraq, the strongest neighboring Arab state, and their endeavor to fragment all the states of the region, such as Iraq, Saudi Arabia, Egypt, and Sudan, into paper statelets and through their disunion and weakness to guarantee Israel's survival and the continuation of their brutal crusade occupation of the peninsula, end quote. The terrorism campaigns began against the United States as two US embassies became victims of truck bombings in Nairobi, Kenya and Dar es Salaam in Tanzania. 
The cause for the bombings came from Ayman al-Zawahiri's response to members of the Egyptian Islamic Jihad arrested and renditioned from Albania to Egypt with the cooperation of the United States. The four men were accused of participating in the assassination of Rifat al-Mahoub, a member of the Egyptian parliament. Two days later, the embassies were bombed. The methods for terrorism were not seen before, not since Abu Nadal's waves of bombings and assassinations in the 1970s, which paled in the broader scope of what these new terrorists were about. Just months prior to the US embassy bombings, in an interview dated May 17, 1998, granted to John Miller, a reporter with ABC News, bin Laden stated this in regards in his latest fatwa. Quote, the call to wage war against America was made because America has spearheaded the crusade against the Islamic nation, sending tens of thousands of its troops to the hand of the whole two holy mosques over and above its meddling in its affairs and its politics and its support of the oppressive, corrupt and tyrannical regime that it has controlled. These are the reasons behind the singling out of America as a target and not exempt of responsibility are those Western regimes whose presence in the region offers support to the American troops there. We know at least one reason behind the symbolic participation of the Western forces, and that is to support the Jewish and Zionist plans for expansion of what is called the Great Israel. Surely, their presence is not out of concern over the interest in the region. Their presence has no meaning save one, and that is to offer support to the Jews in Palestine who are in need of their Christian brothers to achieve full control over the Arab Peninsula, which they intend to make an important part of the so-called greater Israel." End quote. Rahi Mullah Yasafarzi, who reports for the News of Pakistan, as well as Time and ABC, was also granted an interview with bin Laden on December 23, 1998, months after the bombings. He would later be quoted with similar vitriol for the West. Quote, the International Islamic Front for Jihad against the United States and Israel has, by the grace of God, issued a crystal clear fatwa calling on the Islamic nation to carry on jihad aimed at liberating, liberating holy sites. The nation of Muhammad has responded to this appeal. If the investigation for the jihad against the Jews and the Americans in order to liberate Al-Aqsa Mosque and the Holy Kaaba is considered a crime, then let history be a witness that I am a criminal. Our job is to instigate, and by the grace of God, we did that. And certain people responded to this investigation. We should fully understand our religion. Fighting is a part of our religion in our Sharia. Those who love God and his prophet and his religion cannot deny that. Whoever denies even a minor tenet of our religion commits the gravest sin in Islam. Those who sympathize with the infidels, such as the PLO in Palestine and the so-called Palestinian Authority, have been trying for tens of years to get back some of their rights. They laid down arms and abandoned what is called violence and tried peaceful bargaining. What did the Jews give them? They did not give them even 1% of their rights." End quote. Things took an unexpected turn for the worse, however, and on September 11, 2001, 
four planes were hijacked with two crashing into the World Trade Center, one into the Pentagon, and another in a field in Shanksville, Pennsylvania. The attacks were blamed on Osama bin Laden. Intelligence reports from the CIA and the FBI as far back as 1999 suggested that bin Laden and Al-Qaeda wanted to attack the United States from within. These reports went largely ignored. Some even speculated with these reports that the CIA withheld information which could have prevented the attacks in whole. Meanwhile, Israeli and Saudi intelligence rings were monitoring the hijackers from within the United States since January of 2000. In a video obtained by Al Jazeera from Al Qaeda's media arm, As Sahab, bin Laden praised the attacks while flanked by his closest deputies, Ayman al Zawahiri and Suleiman Abu Ghaith. Quote America was hit by God in one of its softest spots. America is full of fear from its north to its south, from its west to its east. Thank God for that. America is tasting now what we have tasted for decades. I say by God the great, America will never dream. Those who live in America will never taste security and safety unless we feel securely and safety in our lands and in Palestine, end quote. Bin Laden would go on to say that the military incursions of Iraq and the continuing support of Israel over Palestinians were other reasons for its attack on the buildings. Bin Laden also gave additional statements, this time in an unpublished video given to Al Jazeera, which was viewed by the Telegraph's reporter, David Bamber, who would write an article entitled, Bin Laden, Yes, I Did It, in which Bin Laden is quoted as saying in regards to attacking the United States Quote, history should bear witness that we are terrorists. Yes, we kill their innocents. The Twin Towers were legitimate targets. They were supporting U.S. economic power. These events were great by all measurement. What was destroyed were not only the towers, but the towers of morale in that country. Blessed by Allah to destroy America's economic and military landmarks. If avenging the killing of our people is terrorism, then history should bear witness that we are terrorists. Yes, we kill their innocents. And this is legal, religiously, and logically. The towers were supposed to be filled with supporters of the economical powers of the United States who were abusing the world. Those who talk about civilians should change their stand and reconsider their position. We are treating them like they are treating us. There are two types of terror, good and bad. What we are practicing is good terror. We will not stop killing them. And whoever supports them, Bush and Blair, don't understand anything but the power of force. Every time they kill us, we kill them. So the balance of terror can be achieved. It is the duty of every Muslim to fight. Killing Jews is type priority. If America used chemical or nuclear weapons against us, then we may retort with chemical and nuclear weapons. We have the weapons as deterrent, end quote. The article was dated November 11th, 2001. However, the resounding statements against the terrorist attacks were clearly heard by the global Islamic Union, both Sunni and Shia alike. Yusuf al-Qadawi, chairman of the International Union of Islamic Scholars and leading imam in Qatar, said, quote, 
Islam, the religion of tolerance, holds the human soul in high esteem and considers the attack against innocent human beings a grave sin. This is backed by the Quranic verse that reads, whoever so kills a human being for other than manslaughter or corruption in the earth, it shall be as if he killed all mankind. And whosoever saves the life of one, it shall be as if he saved the life of all mankind. The prophet, peace and blessings be upon him, is reported to have said, a believer remains within the scope of his religion as long as he doesn't kill another person illegally. Islam never allows a Muslim to kill the innocent and the helpless. Ayatollah Ali Khamenei, the supreme leader in Iran, also openly condemned the attacks. Along with the Grand Ayatollah, Mohammed Hussein Fadala, the spiritual advisor to Hezbollah, who said, responding to the attacks, quote, besides the fact they are forbidden by Islam, these acts do not serve those who carried them out, but their victims, who will reap the sympathy for the whole world. Islamists who live according to human values could not commit such crimes, end quote. The United States and their coalition partners responded just as bin Laden wanted them to, to overextend our military into the country nicknamed the graveyard of empires, Afghanistan, while spending billions in military and neglect their decaying society in return. But it didn't end in Afghanistan. But the far reaches of empire has now extended into the Levant, Iraq, Libya, Syria, and Yemen. The reasons for these military incursions, the fight against the war on terrorism. The countries which once held socialist pan-Arabic beliefs are now destabilized areas rife with Islamist groups which had never existed before. Terrorism is reciprocated by the tens of thousands by drone strikes, bombs, missiles, and the millions of bullets fired by the soldiers aiming at an enemy which was primarily created by a lone Sunni theologian who tried to bring the Muslim world back to the days of the Salaf while trying to unite the world through propagation. The ideology has evolved into ultra-Orthodox apolitical member of entities which are reacting, not according to the world's rejection of the innovations by Ibn Tamiya, Muhammad Ibn al-Wahhab, or Sayyid Qutb, but they are reacting to a disastrous U.S. foreign policy, which helps to facilitate the situation, which gives them a reason to keep fighting the jihad by the sword. That's the end of this episode of The Darkened Hour. I'm your host, Adam Fitzgerald.